0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Tar Heel Prescription, a student-run podcast here at the UNC School of Medicine. My name is Abdul, and we'll be talking about the infectious diseases specialty, what it's all about, what medical students should do now to pursue this career, and more. Today also marks round two of a guest co-host. Grayson, take it away. Hey, Abdul, thank you so much. Uh, My name is Grayson Prevet, as uh, he mentioned, and thanks for allowing me to guest host today. Uh, On the script, as I like to say, uh, I'm a second year medical student, just like Abdul here at UNC, and I've had the pleasure of having several, uh, some would say many gap years where I work in global public health and hospital infection control. So that uh, means that I couldn't resist getting involved with infectious diseases research here in UNC and wondering what it would actually be like to be an infectious diseases physician. So if this sounds like you, or maybe you're just looking for a welcome distraction from studying immunology, wonder no more. I'm so excited uh, here, actually, today to be introduced our very special guest, Dr. Claire Farrell, who I had the pleasure of meeting through Dr. Jessica Lynn and the Infectious Diseases Interest Group. Dr. Farrell is an attending physician and faculty member in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the, and the Medical Director of the ID Clinic here at UNC. We're lucky that she also happens to have attended medical school right here, so ho- hoping to hear a lot more about that, and she has significant interests in global health, care for patients with HIV, and social justice issues. Dr. Farrell, thank you so much for being here.
1: It's an honor to be here. Thank you guys for inviting me.
0: Wonderful. So let's uh, let's just dive right in. If you would, please tell us a little bit more about who you are and, and what you do here at UNC.
1: So, as Grayson mentioned, I am a faculty member here at UNC in the Division of Infectious Diseases, and I have the privilege of having this fantastic mix of clinical care, research, administration and patient care that doesn't always involve face-to-face interaction with patients. And what that means is I get to administer some pretty large grants that we have focusing on HIV care here at UNC, our Ryan White programs. And I get to be involved in other grants and programs that take care of patients longitudinally and help ensure linkage to care.
0: Now, uh, word has it that not too long ago, you were a medical student here at UNC. So could you tell us more a little bit about your personal journey into infectious diseases and kind of what brought you here to do all that cool stuff today and kind of what experience shaped your decision. I think as MS1s and MS2s, we're trying to find those avenues to figure out um, what we're trying to do. Um, So really interested in your journey and maybe describe the role of mentors in that journey as well. Um, We'd be interested in hearing that.
1: Well, I've been incredibly lucky to have some amazing mentors along the way uh, and owe a huge debt of gratitude to them. When I was a teenager, I started getting really interested in social action, um, which has a very natural and close linkage to infectious diseases. And specifically, when I was a teenager, HIV was becoming part of our public awareness. When I was a kid, it became really part of the public conversation. And I had the incredible good fortune uh, to get to know uh, one of our former faculty members, um, Dr. Charlie Vanderhorst. He passed away several years ago, but he was an incredibly important figure in my life and really shaped my interest in infectious diseases coming from a place of social action, coming from a place of compassion, and coming from a place of academic curiosity. And he encouraged me to explore a lot of different ways to enter the field. And ultimately, I was able to work for him uh, in the summers uh, while I was in college and for a couple of years after college, and it really solidified my interest in the field.
0: That's amazing. And we've heard a little bit about Dr. Vanderhorst. Some of our professors have worked with him previously, and I know he was really involved in the Moral Mondays protests Mm -hmm. as well. Um, So that's amazing to hear. Um, Any more on on your journey?
1: Yeah. So through Charlie and and through working here at UNC in the Division of Infectious Diseases, uh, my first jobs here were in the early to mid-90s. And I got to know a lot of people who would eventually become mentors and now colleagues like Dr. David Wall, Dr. Joe Eron, Dr. Ada Atamora, Dr. Bird Quinlevin. There are so many people, and Dr. Mike Cohen, um, who have really um, encouraged me along the way and and who have shown me all the different sides of infectious diseases and the ways that we can approach it. Um, while I was in medical training, um, I had an incredible number of mentors who who were um, so kind and so formative in my interest in the field. Um, Paul Farmer comes to mind. I was able to do a, a health equity focused residency um, and got to work with him and and learned a lot from him just about the standards that we should all hold in terms of patient care and not just making care itself accessible, but high quality care accessible and, and what equity really looks like. I also uh, got to work with Dr. Paul Sack who is uh, an incredible. Wow, um, knock
0: the list off here. This is like know. top five. Um,
1: no, it was, it was a, an incredible privilege. But he taught me a ton um, about a really careful, compassionate, and measured approach to infectious diseases. Um, he is encyclopedic, uh, and he was able to show me how to consider all the different sides of patient care and keep at the forefront the patient themselves, which is a tough balancing act, but but one that I constantly hope to emulate.
0: Wow, that's an amazing journey. Now, I'm just interested to to figure out a lot of um, kind of folks who are kind of very early on in our training, like like ourselves and MS1s, were wondering, were, were some of these mentorship relationships strategic, like you kind of put yourself in the right place at the right time, or was it more fortuitous or serendipitous, where you were just, you happen to be um, connected through a couple of different connections? Um, was it more organic, or, or would you say you were more focused and interested in infectious diseases or from an early uh, on? standpoint?
1: That's a great question. Um, You know, I think it's some of each. And I think, you know, I'm naming mentors who were infectious diseases physicians, and I'm naming people who I worked with who were sort of um, on the path to infectious diseases. But there are countless other people who shaped my interest in infectious diseases, but weren't themselves infectious diseases physicians. Sometimes those are people who I worked with briefly, who taught me really important things. Sometimes there were people who who maybe I didn't completely click with, um, but that I still learned from. I think that these mentorship relationships can't always be forced. So, so I was fortunate to, you know, intersect with all of these people. And, and you know, I, I constantly feel so lucky to have had those experiences. But I also think that doing what I really loved and, and taking some time to really be certain of that helped me engage in those relationships and, and helped me interact with all of those people in a way that shaped who I wanted to be because I was able to figure that out along the way. Um, I think for a lot of people, it can be really scary to commit to a relationship with a mentor, whether it's for a a time-limited research project or whether it's for, you know, a year-long project. But I think the really important thing to remember is that all of these experiences shape who you are as a doctor and that everyone that I know who's a physician, and especially my colleagues in infectious diseases – had experiences where they tried something and either it didn't work out or they decided it didn't like they didn't really like it. So, you know, I think I, I've worked in labs and I decided that lab work wasn't for me, but but that wasn't wasted time. That wasn't a wrong decision. I, I learned stuff that I use now. I think everyone can be a mentor if you figure out what it is you wanna learn from them and and continue to reevaluate what it is you want yourself.
0: No, I think that's a really important message. And I think as medical students, we're pressured to come up with this perfect path and these perfect situations and these perfect research projects, um, but almost the learning the thing that you don't wanna do is almost as important as the, the thing that you do wanna do and taking those pearls from each one of those experiences um, is, is extremely helpful. Um, so you mentioned your residency and fellowship, uh, which is up, was up in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, is there something unique about the work being done down here in North Carolina at UNC and infectious diseases that brought you back? Um, so what were kind of the factors that played into your decision there?
1: So I'm a Chapel Hill kid, and I left for college, came back here and worked and was thrilled to go to medical school here, um, but felt like I wanted to see another part of the country. And I think in the back of my mind, I wanted to come back here. And, and a lot of my experiences here in medical school, um, working here and in research remain the gold standard. Um, I think UNC is an incredibly unique place to train from undergrad to medical school, residency, fellowship, research, and, and you know, to continue to learn as a faculty member. I think for me, I needed to, to be somewhere else and then come back. And being in Boston was a perfect decision for me and for my family, um, and we couldn't have been more thrilled to come back now over 12 years ago.
0: Wonderful. And I'm sure that fresh perspective and kind of desire to come back down was based a lot on the fact, as you mentioned, that UNC is doing um, so many interesting things across a wide breadth and a wide spectrum of infectious diseases research. Um, So fortunately or unfortunately, we had to pick one person to talk to, but everybody's day-to-day kind of life in infectious diseases is a little bit different. Um, But Since we have you here, we're interested, what's your kind of day-to-day look like? You're the the medical director of the Infectious Diseases Clinic. Um, You're interested in kind of a lot of social justice and HIV-focused work. Um, You know, what does that look like? And maybe what does some of your colleagues' day-to-day look like um, that might be a little bit different than yours?
1: So I think one thing that's really opaque to people who are thinking about medical school or even in the early years of medical school, and, and I didn't really fully appreciate this even working for a couple of years in the medical school, before I actually attended (laughs) medical school, is how complicated um, academic time is in terms of the way that it's divided and and what people do. Um, I think I had this notion that if you were a doctor, you spent some time in your office with a lot of papers and some time face-to-face with patients, and I didn't really know what you did the rest of the time. It seemed like like that was a lot of time in itself. Um, But All of us in infectious diseases have a little bit of a a patchwork of a schedule. So what that means is almost all of us have some clinical time. We have some grant-funded time, meaning that money that we apply for, for research purposes from NIH, from other agencies, from private companies, uh, from governments. And some of us also spend time teaching. Some of us get grants that are less focused on research and more focused on clinical care. Um, some of those grants are within UNC and some of them are externally granted. Uh, and other people spend time um, you know, working on contract service with health departments, with our state correctional system, uh, and people serve as advisors for companies, for governments, for the university. It's a huge variety. Um, and, and I think it's an opportunity not just to think about your specific subject area, but your personality and how that fits with with what you like to do. So so I think some people really like to explore a specific research question or set of research questions. And some people like to have a, a broader array of ways to to apply their skills. And again, that's very individual. And I encourage everyone to really take some time to think about that. And you don't have to have it all figured out.
0: Yeah, that's a, another important message that's hard to digest sometimes, I will say, as an early career medical student. Um, speaking of which, what should a medical student who, let's say, is in their first couple of years now, um, if they're interested in infectious diseases, what's kind of the, the most useful path or most useful thing for them to do in terms of preparation? I know, you know, for your procedure-focused specialties you're really thinking about research is kind of important to get involved with. Um, you took a year of research mm-hmm. in, in medical school, if I heard that correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what might be the best thing for us to think about um, in this stage of our training.
1: So I really encourage medical students who are interested in internal medicine and infectious diseases not to be in a hurry. And if that fits with your personal circumstances, take that opportunity. So I was I was really lucky. I went to UNC. I worked before I went to med school, and I was able to take some time to really think about what I wanted to do and, and see what I liked. Um, I applied to a program at uh, the NIH that's now enveloped under the Howard Hughes program, um, where basically you are enveloped in a clinical research training program and are able to essentially choose your mentor. I mean, it was amazing. So I was able to work on uh, HIV related research there. But more importantly, I was able to, you know, have journal club and go on rounds and hear presentations and meet with a huge variety of mentors who also really shaped my interest in infectious diseases and again, helped me kind of hone what I was and wasn't interested in. In addition to time, I think the thing for people to think about over the first two years of med school, um, actually two things. One of them is even if you think you know what you want to go into, embrace everything. And it gives you some wiggle room to change your mind. And And to be honest, any residency program will want to see that you try hard in everything and not just in the thing that's directly relevant to your specialty. I think the other thing that's really important to remember is that for specialties like internal medicine and subspecialties like infectious diseases, you really have to think about everything and and People love infectious diseases on shows like House and and other medical shows where, where there's a medical mystery. But the way that people solve medical mysteries and the way that people really get to the bottom of what's going on with their patient is to understand everything about them. And so... You know, the social medicine course that's taught at UNC is particularly relevant because oftentimes you can't really figure out how your patient got something if you can't figure out what their life is like outside of, of your clinic or outside of the hospital. And, and the critical thing is being able to ask the right questions and you can't walk in their shoes. You're in a privileged position already as, as their care provider. But the really important thing is to understand what to ask about, because a lot of times people can't volunteer information readily if they don't feel safe.
0: That's a a great point. And because we we started talking a little bit about factors outside of the hospital, which is, I think, one of the big uh, mindset or personality pieces that initially drew me to infectious diseases and probably a lot of other folks as well, I'm interested in that kind of with you in terms of personality type, how would you describe the individuals that would go into infectious diseases, maybe kind of from the attending position, looking backward and seeing some of what your colleagues and you share? Um, I'm interested to kind of see if that might match up with some of the things that we're thinking about as early career medical students.
1: So, you know, people joke about, about finding your people. So when you, when you do a rotation, you find your people. I think the thing that's really hard for a lot of infectious diseases folks is that we like everything. And, and that's kind of what brings you into infectious diseases, right? So, you know, when I was a medical student, uh, my, my very first clinical rotation uh, was surgery. So started in the summer. I, I mean, I think that was very lucky because actually I had no idea what clinical rotations were supposed to be like. We didn't have social media. They were like, you know, be here at this time. I was like, great. And I set my alarm clock for like, three 30 in the morning. And I was like, got my bike ready. And I was like, okay, this, I guess this is what we do. Later on in the year, I was like, oh, that, that's not always how that is. Okay. But, you know, starting with that very first surgery rotation, and I loved it. I got to do ENT. I got to do ortho. I mean, it was so much fun. And I really loved all of my clinical rotations. And I think that is a predictor of a lot of infectious diseases doctors. And it's true of a lot of my colleagues. I mean, when you are on the consult service, you get to jump in on patients, you know, in the emergency room. You go see patients in the burn unit, which is an incredible learning experience here at UNC. And I just have to emphasize what a unique learning experience it is to have a burn unit here and what a privilege it is to get to care for burn patients here. Transplant, psychiatry you sometimes you'll be called into the operating room to look at something, You go all over the hospital. And, and, you know, it's a great fit for people. I mean, I loved my surgery rotation, but I, I wasn't going to be a surgeon, but I think I'd feel kind of sad if I never got to think about that stuff again. And so I love thinking about, okay, what kind of implant was it? Or what did it look like? What did the gross specimen look like? What else was in there? I love being able to ask those questions. And if I hadn't liked my surgery rotation, if I hadn't cared so much, I, I wouldn't feel so engaged in it still today, more than 20 years later
0: you know one of the positives of the path of of personality types that like everything is that the infectious diseases specialty normally, and I don't know if this is 100% of the time, but almost all of the time, kind of funnels through the internal medicine residency kind of track. Um, So can you talk a little bit about um, that experience? Did you feel like you were kind of taken away from your interest in infectious diseases? Did you have a really strong inclination for infectious diseases before the residency and that kind of shaped it? Or was it really formed over time um, and you eventually got to that place uh, after your residency?
1: It's a great question. And this is also, I mean, i you guys are much more well-informed than I was as a med student. I actually did not even really understand how one specializes in infectious diseases until I was well into med school. It's This process is really confusing. So so the majority of people who specialize in infectious diseases in this country are people who did a three-year adult internal medicine residency. It has to be three years, unless you choose a research track, in which case that's called short tracking. And, and oftentimes that's someone with a PhD and you do a shorter residency and a longer research-focused fellowship. Majority of people do three years of adult internal medicine residency, so that's people 17 or 18 and up, and then they go on to infectious diseases fellowship. There's two other pathways. So pediatric infectious diseases is a big field as well. There are not as many PEDS ID physicians, but there are a lot. So you can do a pediatrics residency, and then a good number of people do medicine and pediatrics. So that's a four-year residency. Now. There's lots of other ways to do this. So there are primary care focused internal medicine residencies, which are also great fits to go into infectious diseases. So you spend a little more time outpatient. Um, I did a global health equity focused residency, which was four years. Um, So there's lots of ways to do it. But the important thing to remember is that you have to do either internal medicine or pediatrics to do an infectious diseases fellowship.
0: And I think you know one of the maybe fears, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, one of the fears of the people who like everything and the people who go into internal medicine residencies is how do you get those experiences that um, really formalize the subspecialty fellowship that you're going to apply to? Could, can you speak a little bit about you know how that process went for you? And was it always 100% infectious diseases or did you kind of waver between a couple of different ideas?
1: For me, it was always infectious diseases, but, you know, I certainly had plenty of moments where I thought, gosh, I really love this, you know, and I think it's, it was reassuring to me to realize that I could incorporate those experiences and those interests into infectious diseases. I mean, you know, I think one of the things that you have to like is the cognitive subspecialty practice, which means we, we talk a lot about our patients. So we have made a huge effort with the expert guidance of our chief medical residents here at UNC to do very efficient, very focused rounds, oftentimes at the bedside. But sometimes if there's a tough case, we'll spend a very long time talking about it. You know, like I said, we'll trot down to radiology, we'll go to pathology, we'll go to the micro lab, one of our favorite places. And that drives some people crazy. I think everyone has different personality types, but I think some people are much better suited to specialties where, you know, you quickly make a decision about a patient, you check on them and you spend time operating or you spend time, you know, looking at slides or you spend time doing some other intervention and and everybody's different. And, and that's what really makes it all work.
0: And kind of speaking of that idea of getting that holistic full picture of the patient, um, of course, you know, going back to some of our conversation before talking about the social factors that affected their disease process and, and will affect them, obviously, moving forward. Um, so kind of connecting that to to you and your background, can you talk a little bit um, uh, more about your need to incorporate social justice into everything that you do and, and how that is important to kind of the core of, of you as a physician? So, Sorry, that was a little bit of a No,
1: no, dizzy. no, no. So, you know, I think I think there's an intersection of factors here. So I think that you don't have to be an inherently political person to go into infectious diseases. I will be honest and say that a lot of people in infectious diseases um, have uh, somewhat of an activist bent and like to talk about stuff like public health and public policy, but not all of them. The fact of the matter is that that a lot of people who have infections that bring them to medical care, particularly in the hospital, have a relatively advanced medical condition that came about somehow. So sometimes, and if, if anybody is ever interested, by the way, we have wonderful case conferences Friday mornings, please attend. What you'll see in those case conferences is a very methodical consideration of how this infection came to be. And the key considerations are either the host factors like, is the person immunosuppressed? Did they have a bone marrow transplant? Are they on chemotherapy? Do they have HIV? What are the factors that made this infection happen? And for a lot of people, there's not one factor. It's, it's a sort of a collision of poor access to health care, poor health literacy, oftentimes stigma, oftentimes poverty, oftentimes structural factors like having a, a previous incarceration and being unable to work and being unable to get health insurance, or being in an area that's relatively isolated and, and not well served by public transportation or, or other uh, services And some of these factors contribute to advanced infections in a way that becomes really stark when you're seeing someone in the hospital and you realize that if you'd met them a year or two earlier, you could have made a huge difference and in, in really turned things around. And I think everyone in our division without fail feels, feels a huge amount of compassion for our patients and oftentimes um, sympathy or often empathy, but I think also feels um, a real anger when, when we are confronted with that that's sometimes you know, less than five miles away um, or across the state, because everyone who works at UNC has signed on to a mission of service to the state and to the people of North Carolina. And I think all of us feel a real sense of responsibility to, to work on better health and better lives for people in North Carolina and, and around the world for a lot of my colleagues.
0: And kind of staying on that same track, I know you mentioned you uh, pursued a master's of public health um, kind of in a little bit later on in your training. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how that's played into your current practice and how, why you became interested in that in the first place? I know as kind of early career medical students, a lot of us are thinking, do we want to take that extra year? Do we want to eventually get our MPH at some point? Um, What kind of tools did it help you provide to you uh, for your current practice?
1: So it's a great question. And UNC has a phenomenal School of Public Health and and really phenomenal opportunities for medical students, residents, fellows. For me, I knew that I wanted to pursue that at some point. But one of the things that was really important to me was to have a little bit more clarity about the kinds of things that I wanted to learn through that MPH. And and really understand how I was going to use it in my research and in, in my professional life. And when I was considering my my year of research, which I took in between my third and fourth years of medical school here, uh, and when I was thinking about whether or not I wanted to do an MPH that year or whether I wanted to, to do the year at NIH, one of the things I thought about was that I wasn't really sure what I wanted to study. And I think for people who have more clarity than I did at that point, it's a great option, but it wasn't the right one for me at that point. And I think having a year at NIH and kind of being able to refine a little bit more what I was interested in in terms of research and what what the gaps were in my training and in my knowledge base was was really critical. Um, I think MPHs can serve a variety of functions, um, and I think they're a complement to a medical degree, but I don't think that they um, necessarily are a box that you have to check to go into ID before you go into ID. And what I mean specifically is we encourage our trainees, and these sometimes are postdoctoral students, these are infectious diseases fellows, so people who finished their three or four years of residency, if they can figure out what they want to do for research, an MPH is a great option for them because they can really focus on whether they want, you know, maybe they want to use GIS technology to learn more about geography and, and looking at um, epicenters of disease. Maybe they want to learn about clean water. Maybe they want to learn about virology, pharmacoepidemiology. Depends on on what's really kind of lighting their fire at that point. And I think doing it without having um, some idea of of what you want to learn from the year uh, may make it a tougher year. Um, I think it can be stressful to not feel clarity about, about what you want to focus on. And it's such an incredible opportunity to get an MPH that I encourage everybody to think really hard about what courses they want to take, what longitudinal project they might want to pursue, and, and really what they want to get out of it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. As, as someone who I, I was uh, able to take a, a two-year MPH prior to coming medical school, I think there was a little bit more time to kind of figure out which track you wanted to go in. And it's important to note that if you do take it within your kind of medical school curriculum, uh, quote unquote, it is kind of that. Kind of compacted one year experience, so you kind of do have to make decisions a little bit quicker, um, perhaps than the the normal kind of traditional route. And that's a
1: perfect fit for a lot of people. I had a lot of friends in med school who got a ton out of it. I already described how much I loved everything in my third year, so you're already getting kind of a picture of you know my blanket enthusiasm and and uh, probably why I was good that I did it a little bit later on.
0: No, that's great. Wonderful. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the elephant in the room and the impact of COVID-19 on infectious diseases. Um, as someone who was in infection control in the hospital and working with the ID group um, in a pediatric setting, it was a huge impact in terms of complete, you know, at least 90 degrees, if not 180 degrees, of of how the job for some folks looked differently, especially from a hospital epidemiologist perspective. Um, but maybe from a kind of a wider breadth of the ID realm. How would how has the pandemic changed things?
1: So I felt so lucky to be at UNC during the pandemic. I mean, it's obviously was... Um, it's impossible to even put into words the impact that it's had on all of us in in so many different ways and in ways that we're just beginning to recognize. I think um, you know UNC was so well positioned in terms of our collaborative spirit in terms of administrative support in terms of the knowledge base that we had here, and everything from virology, microbiology, to kind of structural interventions like setting up our uh, testing centers and and providing outreach across the state. We also really benefited from a later surge, and a lot of our colleagues um, in other parts of the country and other parts of the world had this immediate surge and didn't have a chance to scale up some of these interventions. But, you know, the the teamwork that I saw, I mean, we had med students come um and help us move our clinic in the space of just a couple of days. And we had we had UNC med students coming and, you know, throwing staplers in boxes and sealing stuff up with packing tape. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Um, our clinic had to move because we were worried we'd need to to put uh COVID patients in the rooms that our clinic was occupying. Um but going back to the broader impact of COVID, I think, you know, beyond the immediate a- aspect of, you know, COVID uh, and and its effects on individuals who who contracted and and continue uh, to contract it, I think the larger impact on ID um, is really the gaps in care. And we saw in our HIV programs, patients who really struggled. Um, I think it brought up a lot of, um, for some of our patients who have long standing infection, it brought up A lot of memories of stigma. Um, I think a lot of our patients also travel a great distance to come and see us in our infectious diseases clinic, particularly for HIV care. And they do that because they don't want to seek care in their own communities. Um, They didn't feel safe. Um, or they weren't able to find a subspecialist. And I think for a lot of those patients, it, it was really, really tough to stay engaged in care and to access care during that time. I think there was also, as you know, a lot of misinformation out there in both directions. So some of our patients were afraid to leave their homes. Some of our patients um, were concerned about vaccines and, and a lot of the misinformation that was spreading about them. Um, and so I think, you know, we saw effects from, from both sides of that uh, wave the COVID wave. Um, And as people began to re-engage in care, um, both through telehealth, as we slowly figured that out, and in person, as we opened up our clinics again, you know, we saw people who had more advanced untreated infections. So people who had STIs, Um, we saw people who had detectable viral loads, meaning that they had had gaps in their HIV therapy, they didn't have access to their medicines. Unfortunately, we've seen more later or advanced cancers being diagnosed in the period after COVID because people didn't attend regular cancer screenings or more likely they missed an appointment prior to COVID and, and you know it ended up being you know, three plus years before they were able to get something evaluated. And I think the economic impact is huge as well. I mean, obviously the country is still recovering, but a lot of our patients were really living on the margins as it was. And I think um, you know being able to pick up odd jobs or being able to work um, in the service industry was something that, that people weren't able to do during COVID. We were able to leverage some funds to do things uh, like a a food bag program. Our social workers were working overtime to link people to food resources and and other resources. Um, And we were able to ramp up a medical ride program, sort of like a medical Uber, bring patients to appointments to kind of smooth that access. I think the indirect effects of COVID, you know, that we're still seeing in all aspects of society and kids who didn't get to go to school um, and in elders who are isolated and people who are medically complex who still don't feel safe going places, we really saw in our ID community as well, especially in our HIV patients.
0: Kind of building off of that kind of greater notoriety with infectious diseases and and a lot of ID expert physicians are big in the news and have been over the last several years. Anthony Fauci comes to mind. Um, I I think there's been, you know, a little bit of a a quasi embracing of infectious diseases expertise. There's also been, you know, reviling infectious diseases expertise, Um, you know, and, and also thinking about all the resources that have been put into all of these. Control measures and public health measures because of the pandemic, and now it's kind of you know slowly lifting back, and, and that kind of makes me think about previous Ebola epidemics in the mid 2010s, the SARS epidemic in early 2000s, and even going back you know to to HIV in the 80s and 70s, and, and flu in the early 1900s. Um, at some point, the resources seem to dry up, and um, do you think that's going to be the case with this current pandemic, or do you think there's going to be some sort of momentum that continues in terms of recognizing the importance of ID infection control uh, kind of best practices moving forward that in, in a way support the ID uh, subspecialty? Or do you think maybe this might be like something similar uh, to, to what's previously happened in terms of resources kind of drying up and kind of going back to status quo?
1: I wish I had a crystal ball for that. (laughs) Um, I think that, you know, independent of COVID, first of all, I think there have been a lot of really compelling studies that have demonstrated very clearly the value of infectious diseases consultation. Um, to look at a very concrete example, patients who have staph aureus bacteremia, so bacteria getting in the bloodstream, staph aureus is a particularly bad kind of bacteremia because it's sticky and it likes to adhere to things like artificial joints, heart valves. It can cause um, threatening spinal lesions. It can it can cause all kinds of stuff and, and um, has a have pretty high uh, rates of morbid, morbidity and mortality um, in patients who are hospitalized. When these patients have an infectious diseases consultation, their outcomes are better. And that's value that's been demonstrated through. A couple of really well-run studies. I would hope that similar research would be able to continue to demonstrate the value of infectious diseases, but so far it seems like that's catching on fairly slowly. Um, in terms of COVID, I mean, I think you know we the expertise of a lot of infectious diseases um, experts like Dr. Fauci, who you mentioned, and countless others, um, countless others at UNC. Even um, I think it's it's really been a mainstay of the public conversation and. Um, I think I've seen you know our local community and our state really rely on the guidance of, of folks in our division um, to shape policies and to try to to get our university and our community back up and running, um, I would hope that that translates into to valuing and um, believing infectious diseases experts, but, uh, but I'm not sure what's going to happen. But I think the other really, really critical thing about infectious diseases and about the public image of infectious diseases has to do with trust. Um, and I think that it's not just about people recognizing us and valuing us and us saying, pay attention to me, value me. I think it's also uh, really incumbent upon us as infectious diseases providers and also on us as a field in medicine to win the public's trust through clear communication, through equitable provision of healthcare, and through combating misinformation however we can we can get at it. I think there's a reason that misinformation flourishes. Um, sometimes it's in an absence of accessible truth, and sometimes it's in an atmosphere of mistrust. And I think that clear communication and building partnerships um, to try and combat that is, is really, really critical. But I think it's going to be hard for ID to be valued without being trusted.
0: And I think one of the things, speaking off of that point, that um, the CDC kind of ran into was the fact of changing guidance over time with new information, and as is the case with all of science, mm-hmm. you know, you have hypothesis-driven kind of uh, uh, standards, and and you want to implement best practices with the information you know at the time, but sometimes that information changes, and that actually might trickle down to different types of recommendations and slight alterations that I think really kind of put people back and saying, well, you said this last week, and now you're saying this this week. Um, and in a way, ID was kind of at the tip of that spear point in terms of the outward facing, uh, community facing, um, from community to hospital uh, communication. Um, so that's another thing that I think is pretty interesting over the course of the pandemic as is how um, visible ID has been in terms of fortunately or unfortunately being either celebrated or blamed for some of those uh, best practice implementation.
1: I think that's exactly right. One of the things that I told people a lot during the pandemic is that there's been a lot of transparency, but it also kind of looks sometimes like uncertainty or like waffling. And so what the public is seeing are how these decisions are made in real time. And it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about running all over the hospital and talking for a long time and, you know, putting all of our heads together, figuring out cases. And the fact of the matter is that that bacteria and viruses are, are living, evolving things and people are living, evolving things. And this is not a static field. And most of the time, for example, when an immunization recommendation is issued and approved, it's, you know, only applicable in the moment to, to a small number of people, let's say a childhood immunization There may be a lot of people um, who are very excited to get their hepatitis B immunization or very excited, I mean, as they should be. Hepatitis B is very important to prevent. Meningitis, HPV. But the public is often not aware of changes in those guidelines, of um, changes in formulations, changes in dosing schedule these things kind of happen behind the scenes and they're issued not usually under much public scrutiny because these are things that are sort of indirectly acknowledged to be based on best practice. And okay, well, this is the recommendation. This is what we're supposed to do. You go to the pediatrician, they tell you, you're going to do this this year and next year we'll do the next one. Okay. Sounds good. And those guidelines were, were being hashed out in the public eye with the COVID vaccines. And I think um, in some ways transparency is wonderful. And I think some ways it it created a lot of confusion and mistrust.
0: And, uh, with one final question um, before we kind of open it up for any additional comments you might want to have, um, kind of a two-parter, um, what's one thing you want listeners, primarily MS1s that are uh, happily undifferentiated at the moment, trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives, um, as we all are, um, to take away from this discussion today? And then if you could kind of condense infectious diseases as a field into kind of a couple of sentences, um, how would that look? Sorry. So,
1: no, it's, it's a great question. It's a great two questions. So I think the most important thing, I think, for medical students is to do what you love. And if something doesn't feel right, it might not be right for you. And specifically what that means is take your time, if you can, and and really find what clicks for you and, and find what kinds of fields um, have mentors that seem to be a good fit for you, what kind of practice speaks to you. If you're not a morning person you you may not want to be in a field where you have to get up super, super early in the morning. Um, for example, that's a silly example, but but really, you have to find what's the right fit. And I think, the other really important thing to remember is that, that you're allowed to change your mind. So you can go through medical school and think that you want to do surgery and then realize that anesthesia is a better fit for you. Internal medicine is a better fit for you. It's okay to, to have your interests evolve. I think the important thing to do is to, to be confident in yourself and in your skills and in your love of medicine and allow that to be part of your story. Um, so changing your mind isn't a bad thing. It shows evolution. Um, but I think it's really critical to have some self-awareness during that process and understand why you're making the decisions that you are. I would also really encourage everybody to cultivate their interests outside of medicine. If there's things that you're passionate about, social justice, speaking another language, art, dance, being outside, whatever it is, make sure that you, you keep that up and that you continue to be good at it. Um, a lot of the most successful and interesting doctors I know are incredible polymaths. I mean, they have amazing skills and knowledge bases outside of medicine and being a whole person is really, really important, but it's also going to serve you well later on down the road because there's a lot of analogies to, to other fields um, within medicine. And summing up ID. So infectious diseases um, is First of all, I want to make it very clear: infectious diseases does not mean communicable diseases. This is one of the most common questions that I get. Aren't you afraid to work in infectious diseases? What if you get something? What if you bring something home to your kids? No. So one of another important mentor of mine, uh, Dr. David Weber, who's a faculty member here, uh, gave a lecture when I was in med school that had the best line ever, which was, "If it's wet and it's not yours, don't touch it." (laughs) Which is like the best rule. I mean, it's not just it, right? That's a good rule for life. So you know, but but truly, in infectious diseases. Um, knowledge is power. So, so PPE protects us. And we're able to see people without fear if we're careful. Now, most infectious diseases are not ones that, that you're going to catch as a physician. There are very, very few. And that's why COVID was such a challenge, because we weren't used to this kind of thing. We use precautions when we see patients who have diarrheal diseases, patients who have tuberculosis, certainly other things. But for the most part, infectious diseases are infections. So these are infections caused by viruses, bacteria, parasites. Sometimes it's amazing. We get to tell people they don't have an infection. That's great. But for the most part, infectious diseases are things that that we consider as part of the whole person. Um, And they're not things we're afraid of catching. They're not things that we can always cure. And they're more about um, trying to intervene so that a patient
0: can lead a healthy life. Wonderful. Dr. Farrell, thank you so much uh, for your time today. This has been a delightful conversation. Um, some may say even therapeutic. Um, any other final comments that you, you have and you want to share?
1: I want to just thank you guys so much for the invitation. It's such a privilege um, and I feel so lucky to have gone to med school at UNC and to be back here. Um, it's an amazing community for IDE, for medicine in general, and for public health.
0: Wonderful. Uh, To our listeners, that was Dr. Claire Farrell, providing a little bit of a snapshot into infectious diseases. Um, If you have a similar career interest or even remotely interested in ID, I'll throw a shameless plug in for our infectious diseases interest group. Uh, That meeting will be coming up on October 18th, and there's going to be more communication forthcoming about that. We're going to be inviting some of the attendings and some of the fellows in ID to come and really have intimate conversations uh, with interested students and talk about their day-to-day life and what brought them to ID as a career here at UNC. So with that, Uh, And I think our day's prescription has been filled. um, And I'll hand it back over to you, Abdul. Thank you for that, Grayson. I agree. The prescription for today has definitely been filled. Thank you for helping co-host. And Dr. Farrell, thank you very much for being here. I think this was, as Grayson said, delightful and insightful for both current and future prospective students in infectious disease. And with that, my name is Abdul. Thank you guys for tuning in and we'll see you guys next time.